And we are live back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns, and as usual, I'm joined by the autism sage herself, Mama Baden. How are you? I am good. The sun is shining. It's a little cold, which is not my favorite, but I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready for some good discussion today. Super excited after a lazy Easter weekend. So you want you want you want to introduce our guest? Um, well, I think our guest actually can introduce himself. Mr. Is it Mr. Hannon or Michael? I'll probably say Michael because I'm Southern. Michael is just fine. Michael is just fine. Um, is, is it tech, is it, it's Dr. Hannon, right? I do have a doctoral degree, yes. So that that's the yeah, that's a professional title, but that that's not <laughs> all of who I am. And uh, hopefully it's, it's a small part. Um I'm Michael Hannon. Uh glad to be with you all today. Appreciate the opportunity to just chop it up and 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 discuss our experiences. Um, I am a black husband, a black father <laughs> of two black children, all of whom I love dearly. Um, and uh, my connection with uh, autism is that uh, of my two children, our son, um, Avery, who is 17 years old, was diagnosed with, um, your listening audience may know, may, this may be familiar mm -hmm. to them, uh, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. Uh, he yes. was diagnosed with that at 21 months. And um, from that time, my wife and I and our family um, by proxy has been on our autism journey, trying to really just be the right kind of help for each other, uh, mm -hmm. for our son, obviously, and for the world to treat him in ways that he deserves <laughs> and he needs. Professionally, um, I'm a counselor educator, meaning I teach in a counseling program, people who wanna be counselors, either clinical mental health counselors or school counselors or addictions counselors or student affairs professionals in higher education. And I also see clients on a part-time basis. I do, I do work as a clinician. Um, and so I get a chance to study, read, write, and live being a black dad of, of, of two great children, one of whom happens to have autism and, um, and uh, document it in ways hopefully people find valuable. I love that. I love that. And you know what I love is um, how it's, how it, it's evident that um, uh, your identity as a black dad, black father, black husband is something to say, right? Because it's a part of who we are. It's a part of our experiences. And, you know, Tarn and I have this discussion all the time in terms of the experiences are different based on the color of our skin and even within the color of our skin within our own community, right? Um, you know, my experiences are different than my best friend's experiences based on the shades of our skin. And so, I, I love that you said that when you said every role that you had in life, because I think that's important for us to have those discussions. Um, I grew up in New Orleans. We talked about race very openly um, in my community and within my family. So it's always odd to me when the discussions in other places are not had, right? Where people get really uncomfortable. And I'm like, why are we uncomfortable when it's just it, like it is what it is, right? Like, so I love to know, um, I would really love to know what it is that your family has that is so wonderful that has you feeling supported where you know your son is supported. Um, what is that? What's that? What is that? What does your family have? <laughs> oh man, um, I appreciate the question. And uh, I think we have uh, love. I, I mean, that's a very nondescript answer, but it's, it's the most honest mm -hmm. thing that comes to mind. Um, we do our best to um, 
love each other without condition or without pretense. And um, sometimes we fall short. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty guilty of that. I'm, I'm a person who can hold grudges pretty <laughs> easily. Um, but um, above and beyond my own and any, any of our limitations and challenges or areas for growth, um, at the end of the day, I know that um, my family, my wife, my children um, love me in ways they, they, that they only can. And, and that is, um, it is life sustaining um, mm -hmm. to receive love the way my wife gives it to me, my partner gives it to me, to receive love the way my daughter gives it to me, mm -hmm. and to receive love the way my son gives it to me. They're not the same, and they're equally as valuable and important. Um, we're privileged because also we have the love of our extended family. And mm -hmm. uh, I know many people. There are some people who don't have that. There are some people who do have that. But um, what, what benefits us in particular is not only is that love evident and tangible, but it is in close proximity. Many of us live in the same community here in the greater Philadelphia region. Mm -hmm. And so it's nothing. Um, as young parents, um, as a young married couple, when we needed help and we needed reinforcements or we need somebody to check us or somebody need to check me or things like that, it was nothing for my, my mom or my dad to come through, my sisters to come through, my, my parents in love to come through um, and, and help, help us hit the reset button when we felt overwhelmed or didn't feel like we had what was necessary to get over a particular challenge. And so not only do we have love that, that makes our experience really valuable and my experience valuable, but it's, it's, it's tangible, close, intimate love that, that sustains us in ways that, um, you know, that make me deeply grateful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, it's interesting when you said when love was the response and it's like, oh, that just seems so simple, but it really is that simple. Um, it really is that simple in terms of, you know, every individual typically wants to feel loved. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons that Torn and I are here trying to shift the narrative is because um, our children deserve to be loved. They deserve to be treated as human beings because they are human beings. And um, in order to do that, we've got to have these discussions and, and shift that narrative. And, you know, your role as a dad, um, I was saying before we started recording um, with excitement, I just love my dads. I mean, I totally, when I have a parent coaching session and a dad is there, um, I have even arranged sessions at like three in the morning for my Australian parents or, you know, some ungodly hour because the dad is available and that's the only time. And I'm like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get dads on board um, if they're willing, right? Because a lot of times it is just the moms. And, and one of the things that I love about dads is typically my dads are um, what I call Excel processors, right? They want to know when they're going to reach this, when they're going to do this. And so they want the numbers, right? And, you know, there's always a frustration from the moms that either the dads are, you know, not available or whatever the situation is. And I always tell moms, you know, dads are fixers, right? And if sometimes when they can't fix it and they don't know how to fix it, they either get out or they come to the table to figure out what I can do, right? Um, but I find that dads, and the other thing that I wanted to say in terms of the moms that get really frustrated is dad won't say much, right, during the session. And the moms are like, you know, they never, and they'll text me, you know, mom, the dads and I, and I said, but when they do say something, it's just the most wonderful, profound thing. And it's always an indication that they've been listening. And so I think that, 
you know, moms, and I'm generalizing, of course, but moms and dads are different perspectives. You know, I parent to black males, um, their dad and I have the same, you know, uh, love and goals for our children, but we come from two different perspectives. And so I like to know, um, what advice, um, and I hate to use the word advice, but what is it that, what is it that just keeps our dads not present? Like, um, and, and I have like my own theories, but I'm not a dad. Right. And, and so, you know, sometimes I feel like it's the moms who are so assertive dads don't have a chance to be involved. Right. And so I have to tell my moms, pull back, let him go to speech therapy. You don't have to be, you know, because a lot of moms can be very assertive and, and they don't realize that they partner up with an opposite um, because opposites attract. So, so what is that? What, what can we do? Is there anything to do? What is that about um, and your experience? Yeah. Big question, Stacey. I don't know that I have a, <laughs> a, a succinct answer. I'll, I'll do my best to clarify my thoughts and, and convey them hopefully mm-hmm. you know, in a clear way. I think, um, I would push back a bit and say uh, dads may not be present. I think the way we measure involvement um, Mm -hmm. is important. And so um, for some families, so the first thing I think about is how boys and men are socialized in the United States and arguably globally, Mm -hmm. that boys and men are socialized absolutely to be fixers. And so you referenced the the, uh, the Barry Presence and the Uniquely Human podcast. Um, I think boys and men in this country, if they aspire to be dads um, and fathers or father figures or what some folks call other fathers, you know, men who are just in the community doing good work with uh, children and adolescents um, who are in close proximity to them, um, they are measures of good fathering, in my opinion, this is going to be totally oversimplified, but this is my theory. Um, measures of good fatherhood is about, are, is represented by three things. And I'm going to use some alliteration here. You're a good dad if you provide for your children. And, and sometimes we take this narrow definition of provision and we mm-hmm. think about it in financial terms. And so if mm-hmm. boys and men have been socialized to be good providers as fathers, and I'm going to use this term loosely, mm-hmm. leaders, even though all parents are leaders in their household. Yeah. But if, if boys and men are socialized to be good providers, if they're going to be fathers, the narrowest definition of that is financial provision. Mm-hmm. When, we know, when we know men are providing much more than uh, financial resources um, for their families, they're, they're providing emotionally for their children um, and in a variety of other ways, ways. So provision is the one way. Dads are good dads if they can provide. And the most easy and sometimes intellectually lazy metric of financial of, of provision is in financial terms. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is uh, dads are good dads if they prepare their kids, right? And so what does it mean? Um, I'm not a good dad if, if my kids can't go out into the world and be successful. Somebody might judge me because of my children's level of success or not in whatever context and say, oh, Mike wasn't a good dad because you know, his kids can't go out and, and, and keep a job for more than six months at a time. And somehow that's a reflection of my fathering. And so we, we judge men and fathers based on the success and how prepared people say their children are to be functional in the world, whether it's in school, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's on the athletic field or anyplace else. And the last thing I would say is, and these are in no particular order, dads are judged on how effective they are based on um, 
whether they can protect their families, right? So provision, protection, and preparation. And um, if something happens to my family, then somebody might judge me based on how well, well I was able to protect my family from whatever it is. And sometimes, unfortunately, and we, you and I know this, all of us know this, that sometimes people attribute an autism diagnosis and an inability to protect our kids from this particular condition or this particular uh, presentation mm -hmm. and, and living in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's a long answer. I think sometimes father's um, lack of presence in moments mm -hmm. many times is based on how they've been socialized about what is good and not good parenting. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then if we take one step back and get out of the weeds and look at the forest, who likes to do things that make them uncomfortable. And so if I'm thinking about um, my child, you, you find me the person who um, envisioned their child having autism, unless they had a, a prior experience with autism, maybe somebody else in the family has it and lives with it and may not have a great quality of life because of all the systems that oppress autistic people. Um, but who, if I don't know how my son communicates, why would I wanna be in a room mm -hmm that further illustrates my inability to communicate with my son. Mm -hmm. If I don't know, even let's take a step even back further out of the weeds. If I don't know how to change a diaper, then why would I be jumping at the opportunity to change a diaper to, to, to illustrate how bad of a diaper changer I am? So mm -hmm. some of this speaks to familiarity and uh, people, I would say, and, and in some cases, fathers are more likely to engage when things are familiar, mm -hmm. when things may be a bit more predictable. You're not going to hit me with something, some, some, something that I wasn't anticipating. And I think some of those things speak to fathers' engagement with their children and the ways that they do it um, that get misrepresented. Um, and the narrative turns into, oh, he's absent. Oh, mm -hmm. he's not around. Um, and, and then maybe the last thing I'll say is some of the trepidation or reticence in fathers uh, engagement with their children, be they autistic or not, is it speaks to, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. It speaks to their um, willingness to, to be coached, right? Mm -hmm. There's a safety that exists. What we know from research is that men are more inclined to be coached by other people who have a similar lived experience than by somebody who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a space designed for parents of autistic people, the presumption is that it's going to be for moms. If it doesn't explicitly say it's for dads, mm -hmm. yeah. then the presumption is that it's going to be for moms in the same way that when services are rolled out for people, the presumption is that the services are being rolled out for white people, unless mm -hmm. it says this is a group for black dads. Mm -hmm. This is a group for gay autistic people. Mm -hmm. Unless it specifically says it, the, the presumption is that those services as well intended and effective as they may be, it is for the people who have the most influence or are in mm -hmm. the numerical majority. So those are the things that come to mind for me right away. Yeah. Sorry for the long answer. No, no, no. There are no apologies for 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 good discussion. Um, and, you know, I, I love to tell stories, Michael. And so what I just thought about when you said um, how important it is to, to specify like this is for black dads or, uh, you know, moms of kids with autism. Um, it's uh, I was it's necessary because 
you need to know you're going to a safe place. You need to know that you're going to be embraced, right? And I remember when I was in college eons ago, um, and I had a roommate that I knew from Girl Scouts, and she was not, she was a white girl. And I remember as she came home to the apartment, I was watching BET, that's when BET just started. And I remember she looked at me and she said, oh my gosh, you guys have your own network? And I said, yeah, it's pretty cool. She was like, Oh, that's not fair. We want our own network. I said, you have the entire freaking universe of networks. Like, (laughs) do you not realize you own everything already? And she was clueless. And so it was one of those moments where, you know, in my young adult life, I was like, people really are just sort of like walking around with blinders on. But it was, you know, we gravitated to BET because it was a place that we knew we would hear stories about people that were like us and had the same experiences. And I think that's important. So that brings me to one of the questions that I've been just sort of holding inside since I listened to the podcast. Um, I mentioned that I love my dads, right? Love my dads, my dads who come to the table and not that my, the other dads are not great dads. I just don't know them. Right. So the dads that I do know, um, and I, and, and my head's all over the place, but I will go quickly back to just to clarify when I said present, because I do think it's important for, for parents to realize moms, especially even, um, grandparents, that present, I'm not talking about present like at work, working late. I'm talking about like left the house, right? Like gone. Um, because I do think, and I have some really great moms who have said, listen, I told my husband, you go and make all the money so that I can stay home and do what I need to do and, and get our child where they need to be. And 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 that's the deal, right? Like that's your con- contribution and everybody needs to be able to have that discussion. Um, so I do understand that presence looks different um, depending on time. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. But one of the things that that I've been struggling with um, is my wonderful dads who always say, I love to talk to other dads. And then I get all the dads and say, here, look, here, look, look, look. I put the little web, right? The string and match every minute here. And, and, and you know, my friend said he would do a barbecue. And then I, I, I sit back because I'm like, I'm not a dad and no one says anything, right? It's like going to a junior high dance where nobody gets on the floor to say, you know, well, anyway. And so I'm like, hello, you guys said you wanted to get together. Is anyone going to say anything? (laughs) And then they want me to say something. I'm like, but, but that's the whole point because you have so many assertive women in your life that are, you know, doing the directing. I wanted to give you a chance to direct because that's what you said you wanted. And so as a result, there was no barbecue, right? And and so I'm like, should I have done the barbecue? I don't know if I should have done the barbecue. So, so help me understand either what I did wrong, what can be done differently, or how I can get these dads to have what they want, or or maybe they don't know what they want. I don't know. Help me understand. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So kudos to you for the effort. <laughs> kudos to you for the effort and and um, being courageous enough to. Um, try to connect dads with a similar experience. Um, but so, so the, the quick answer is I don't know. Um, what I what I what I will also say is here's here's what's helped me and what's helped us. Um, you may know um, with uh, with Robert Nassif, my my friend and colleague, we co lead the monthly support group for dads of autistic kids, mm-hmm. autistic people. Um, uh, 
on the third Saturday of every month. And we usually do it during the academic year. This is the third year we've done it. And um, one of the things we always look forward to is um, giving the men who come, giving these dads the opportunity to share their narrative. And typically we open, so some of this is like group facilitation skills, you know, so it's like, we'll open the group, um, acknowledging what you've said earlier, like um, your inclination may be to fix things. Your inclination, guys, maybe as you hear somebody else to tell him, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to see, this is where you need to go. And we stop and we say, but we're not here for that. There's an opportunity for us to trade resources and, and consult with each other outside of this time that we've designated. And in this moment, for this next uh, 70 or 80 minutes, we literally just want to hear about your journey and how you think it's transforming you. Got it. Right? And leaving it there. Um, and so we also say something along the lines of, even if you decide not to say a word, you can engage in a couple of different ways. You can use the chat now that we're in the Zoom world and we, we, we seems like we live here now. Um, you can use the chat to engage. You can sit quietly and observe. Um, but if and when you choose to talk, um, talk about who you are in your journey. And if you don't say anything, our hope is that you hear part of your story and some of the other narratives that are shared for the guys who do decide to talk. And then the other thing is making sure we do our best not to... Um, not to call out anybody who chooses not to talk, right? Because we know along this journey, because of the ways autistic people are so marginalized mm -hmm. and stigmatized that these dads, some of them are still working through their own levels of acceptance of their children's differences um, so that they can be the right kind of help. And so yeah. um, sometimes that can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It can be um, in moments, it can feel debilitating. Uh, particularly if you feel like you're operating on an island and no one else can can connect to your experiences. And then the space allows the guys to say the most frequent feedback we hear is that I'm just glad I'm not the only one going through this experience. Mm -hmm. And so it's really an invitation for them to share their story. Um, sometimes those stories can get a little long, right? Because maybe mm -hmm. they've not ever taken the opportunity to share it, right? And the mm -hmm. first time you're sharing it, all this stuff is welling up. You're yeah. thinking about the great experiences. You're thinking about the really challenging experiences. You're thinking about your relationship with your partner. You're thinking about your other kids and all that stuff can come up. And so we do a little bit of coaching to say, hey, within the next, I don't know, 60 to 90 seconds, tell us your story. Mm -hmm. And then, and then somebody else jumps in and then somebody else jumps in. And then somebody says, Hey, my kid is 40 and your kid is 13. Let me tell you about something. So when my kid was a 13 year old going through the school system. And, and so it begins to make the connection points so they can literally hear and see their children's experiences that align versus the things that um, make them distinct. So hopefully that's that. that. Yeah. So insightful. And, and I will, I will say um, in regards to me trying to get the dads together, I can't tell you how many of my moms were like, well, can we go? No, you can't go. No, you can't go. Right. And it's, it's really funny because, you know, opposites attract, right? So very assertive women, you know, tend to not always get the alpha male. I'm not, I'm overgeneralizing. But, um, I mean, I had an alpha male and I'm pretty assertive. Am I assertive, Torin? <laughs> no, I'm really very shy. Um, but I should say that usually opposites attract, right? Somebody's a go-getter. Somebody's like, okay, I'm going to sit back and just wait for you to tell me what you need me to do. And 
that opposite attract sometimes, you know, drives them crazy, but the dads, they contribute. And sometimes I have to help the moms to sort of see that, but it was funny how they were like, cause I even made a Facebook group, right. For all of them to get together and the moms, can we get in the group? No, I need you to not be in their space. I will say as a clause also, several of my dads in that group are undiagnosed autistic individuals. So that's part of the dynamic of someone maybe initiating sort of that, that getting together. Um, uh, that happens a lot, a lot in families, but uh, thank you so much. And I believe there is, or is your book coming out? Has it been released? Is there something in the works? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing so that everybody can, can get some insight from, from all of your, uh, what's the new terminology now? Now lived experiences. My, my 25 year old said that to me today in a conversation. And I said to him, okay, I don't know if you've lived long enough to have lived experience, but okay, you feel like that's your journey. You own it, 25-year-old. But um, <laughs> what's going on, um, Mike? Yeah, um, thank you. Um, yes, the book is out. It was, <clears throat> it was released um, March 23rd by Peter Lang Publishers. Shout out to Peter Lang Ooh. and um, how, they've, how they've been supportive. Um, the book is called Black Fathering and Mental Health. I'll give you a little thing <gasps> Oh, I love that. It's not that. quite showing through the background. Yeah, I'm sorry about That's that. That's an awesome <laughs> background, by the way. I meant to oh, say yeah, that. Got to give a shout out to Black women, right? Um, but um, the, the book is called Black Fathering and Mental Health. And um, it literally, here's hopefully a better. Much better, perfect. yes. Yeah, and I got the sunlight coming. Nice, that's perfect. That is perfect. There you go. So the, the book is... Um, it's It's been in the works for quite a while. Um, super excited to, to share with you. And it really is, it's an edited volume. So I'm not the sole author of it. I've got um, a collection of uh, black counseling professionals, all of whom are either aspiring black fathers, uh, current black fathers and or the, the children, the adult children of black fathers. And what I've asked them to do is talk about their, their, their fathering journey at different points across the lifespan or the life cycle. And so I've got men talking about what it was like for them to aspire to be fathers mm -hmm. and confronting challenges with uh, infertility. I've got um, folks uh, who are same gender loving talking about what it means to think about their fatherhood in the context of their life as, as a same gender loving husband um, and surrogacy and all those unique considerations mm -hmm. um, for same gender loving couples. I've got folks, folks talking about um, what it means to father their black children and get them ready for entering the school system and raising adolescents and being adult children of black fathers. And all of the chapters not only capture those experiences, but the guys, and, and it's not just guys, but the authors, the contributors are answering the question, um, who influenced your fathering practice? Um, what did you learn along your journey? And did you ever seek counseling help in the midst of that journey? If you did, what did you learn? If you didn't, why didn't you seek it? And because all of these contributors are professional counselors, mm -hmm. they offer recommendations for counselors and other allied mental health professionals, should they be seeing black father clients who have similar experiences? And so it's really a resource for anybody who loves and cares about or is in community with black men who mm -hmm. may or may not be black fathers at some point in time. Um, and um, I'm super excited about it. I'm super proud of it. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful for the, for the people who've contributed 
Um, they are all friends, colleagues, homies, um, mentors, and um, I'm, I'm just excited about it and proud of, of what we were able to, to create and produce. I'm excited too. In fact, I just wrote it down because I think I'm going to um, get it for myself, of course, but I'm going to send it to um, my boy's dad. Um, I have to say I chose well. My my boys have an awesome dad. He he really, I mean, we divorced, but we co-parented very well, very, very well. Um, and um, I'm, I'm very proud to, uh, to call him my kid's dad. He, he did a good job. He always says, we did it together. I'm like, yeah, but you know, there are parts of it that you did that I couldn't have done. And so um, I appreciate uh, everything, even though sometimes we all drive each other crazy, right? Um, but uh, I, uh, my youngest son had a mental health crisis uh, a few years ago, and it was probably the worst parent moment of my entire life. Um, worst, worst, worst. Don't ever want to have to go back there again. Um, but luckily, I had a relationship where I knew what was going on. And so, you know, his dad and I definitely supported him. But um, that's I love this. And, and I could see moms benefiting as well. Learning from understanding the, the Black father experience, I think, is important. I think women forget to think about what it's like to be a dad, right? Yeah. Because everything's about moms. Um, and so, so to your point, Stacey, I want to I want to draw a couple things to your attention. Um, there are chapters. Um, there, there are two chapters in particular, or maybe three chapters in particular. I want to bring to the attention of of your listening audience. Um, one chapter um, details um, what it has been like for one author who is a black counselor and counselor educator to be a non residential and engaged father with his children mm-hmm. and considerations, the things that they do to protect themselves and support their children's mental health and well-being, mm-hmm. um, detailing when they went to, to therapy in the midst of reconciling, was, was the marriage going to stay intact or were the parents going to separate? And mm-hmm. then um, the consequences of that. So that, that was really dope. Um, the guy's name is uh, Sam Steen, Dr. Sam Steen. Uh-huh. There's another chapter in there um, that, talks about um, a brother by the name of Eric Williams, Dr. Eric Williams, who's, who's a clinician down in uh, North Carolina. He has two autistic sons who are twins. And he details he and his wife, his experience, but mm-hmm. obviously in, in the broader context of parenting, he details his experience of, you know, um, the, the challenges and the victories of, of parenting twin autistic children, what has helped him, um, the kinds of counseling support he may have needed at the time. Um, and really does a, a really, really great job in, in detailing that. And then the last one, to your point, um, my chapter, one of the chapters that I, I contributed um, was about my daughter having a mental health crisis as well mm-hmm. and acknowledging that um, suicidality, uh, suicidal ideation, attempts at suicide and completed suicides is not just a crisis among children and adolescents, but it's increasing in black children and adolescents. And I detail with the permission of my daughter, um, our experience with it, mm-hmm. and me responding and our family responding to that. And then what we needed to do to heal or get mm-hmm. on the road to healing and getting individual counseling <laughs> for all of us, mm-hmm. couples work for my wife and me and family counseling for all four of us mm-hmm. so that um, we, could, we could be the right kind of help for each other. And so I appreciate you sharing that. And I just want to say that there are 
there is specific content in this book about each of those experiences among a range of others mm -hmm. um, that I think um, your readers may appreciate. So thank yeah. you for listening. No, I'm excited. And, and um, uh, I may even uh, ask my son to read it. He, he's really funny when I tell him, when I recommend a book, it's not you know valid, but when <laughs> someone else recommends the book, then it's validated, but that's okay. That's it's always just the messenger. It's always the messenger. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned that about uh, some, there, there, I, have, I have a couple questions. One of the things I want to add is since everyone's talking about uh, mental health crisis, I had, <laughs> I had dealt with some, well, I've always had dealt with mental health issues. I've been in and out of counseling, some of it because I had a very traumatic childhood. But when I was, I don't know, 26, 27 in that ballpark, I dealt with some, I had like a, what you call a mental health crisis. Basically, I tried to off myself. And Obviously, I failed because <laughs> I'm still here. But um, I was dealing with some stuff because uh, basically a lot of autistic children become autistic adults. People tend to forget that. Um, so and basically adulting was really like running train on me. Um, I bombed out of a couple jobs. I was dealing with a lot of stuff. And then also some of the unprocessed trauma I mentioned started to catch up to me. And I was convinced I was turning into my father. My dad was I'm convinced he was an undiagnosed autistic. And as a result of not being diagnosed, he dealt with the issues of autism through drug use mm -hmm. and through pill popping. So I, I had a lot of that stuff going on. So that was one of the things I just wanted to add. Like I kind of, I, I get that experience because I both so dealt with mental health from the side, my dad had it and I dealt with it myself. And another thing I'd like to ask you to extrapolate on is this idea in the culture that like black fathers just don't show up for their kids and it's only black fathers that are absentee. For example, my, my dad was white, white pill popping meth addicted father who would explain to me how black fathers didn't show up for their kids like he did. They didn't show up and he would call it, and I quote, pulling an N-word. He, he, he didn't use the N-word, he didn't say N-word. Um, so, which is funny how you say racial slurs when for, for those you can't see, like I, I'm pretty dark. We're all around the same skin complexion. Like my mom was black. So, mm -hmm. but that's not here nor there. So I would, so you talked about it on Barry's podcast a little bit about how this misconception that black fathers aren't there for their kids. Can you talk a little about that? Cause it is a bit of a misconception. Yeah. Well, Torin, I, one, I appreciate you sharing it. And I'm, um, I'm glad to see that, um, you've in the midst of all of the challenges that you've confronted like you seem to be a pretty dope dude and oh, um, thanks I, I appreciate the question and um yeah I, I think I think we just have to acknowledge one I mean if if you if we generally agree that um we live in a racist world um and there's a benefit to some people to maintain the racial hierarchy in spaces and in institutions and in structures then it's not so hard to fathom that a, an absentee black father narrative benefits certain systems, right? So I'm not, I'm not a, a sociologist, but I do understand in a very cursory way that uh, mass incarceration has uh, in some ways positioned black families to fail, yep. right? Economically, educationally, um, uh, with respect to career development and options, um, to engage civically, 
And so if we think about the influence of mass incarceration on black families, mm-hmm. then it's easy to assume that black fathers are absent. But one thing I, I always challenge myself and um, c- counseling students is to ask themselves and reflect to say, of the pre- presenting issues or presenting problems people bring to counseling, is that something internal and something they have to work through themselves? Or is it something, is it an external force that has brought on those challenges? And so I don't wanna oversimplify, but I will say that we can't talk about black fatherhood in totality if mm-hmm. we don't acknowledge racism. Mm-hmm. We, can't, we can't do it. And so um, there's some research that suggests that black fathers are the most engaged fathers across all racial and ethnic groups in this country. We make um, moral assumptions and judgments about where those black fathers live. And because they don't live in the house with their children at times, then somehow there's, that's a moral failure. Mm-hmm. But on measures of engagement, frequency of interaction, playtime, um, and all these different measures of fathering behavior, there are some folks and there's evidence that tells us that black fathers are doing that more than any other racial or ethnic group in this country. But what would it do to begin to share that narrative versus maintain the narrative that black fathers are absent? Well, it lets us be intellectually lazy. Mm -hmm. It it allows us to not be constructive or critical thinkers to say, yeah, I know I came up in this kind of household and we kind of prioritize um, heterosexual, highly educated, um, middle-income households. And anybody that doesn't fit into that category of profile, then they're the other. If you came up and were uh, um, eligible for free and reduced lunch, you're the other. If you were the only black student in the classroom, you're the other. If you're the only one who had a particular kind of hair texture, you're the other. And so it really requires us to be intentional. We can't have a full and honest conversation about black fatherhood without acknowledging that racism is a permeating, devastating, force mm-hmm. in the lives of people who are not perceived to be white, particularly exactly. perceived to be white. Exactly. In exactly. Yes. And it also allows the people in power, and I don't mean to point fingers, but conservatives, Democrats too, but in particular Republicans, to essentially blame Black people for crime and poverty. It's like, whoa, they're just they're broken homes. They're coming from broken homes. There's a guy, I forget his name, he has a famous book called The Boy Crisis, where he pulls a bunch of research that doesn't take socioeconomic factors into account and finds that if two parents aren't in the household, then essentially it leads to all these bad outcomes. But it, it his, I forget his name, but his research does not take socioeconomic factors into account <laughs> at all, at all. So it's like, it's essentially useless in my opinion. If you're not, if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna take that, if you're not gonna pay attention to that, poor families tend to have produced children worse outcomes and then look into why there's systemic poverty in minority in particular black communities. If you're not going to do that, then why do the research at all? Because it's just a waste of time, unless you want to hold up a racist narrative. That's just how I feel. And you are, um, you are, you are, forgive the Christian uh, reference, but you are preaching the whole word right there. So (laughs) no, I, I I appreciate that. And um, we can, we can be courageous enough to look at those kinds of trends and predictors of quality of life and what predicts things like violence in communities, what predicts things mm-hmm. like um, um, uh, 
lower or poor, I hate to use the word poor, but um, um, educational outcomes that are that are um, that are less than or or not comparable to white outcomes, white students' outcomes, white folks' outcomes, and what some of those biggest predictors are unemployment mm-hmm. and poverty, right? So if, if those things disproportionately in, influence black families, then we're not having a complete conversation, like just like you said, Torn, unless we're taking those social and economic factors into consideration. So and and I will say as an educator that a lot of my um, black dads, uh, because of uh, social dynamics, whatever is going on in the community, whatever, we could list a bunch of things. Um, because of that need to provide and protect, um, do do things that are, are criminal in order to provide. Um, and sometimes it becomes a necessity because of circumstances, right? I mean, that's the reality. Um, I worked in Ninth Ward, New Orleans. Um, I'm a New Orleans girl. Um, and, and there's a lot behind, be a lot behind the scenes that people don't understand and don't know. And the generation and generation after generation of just trauma. And it's not as simple as doing a behavior plan or going to counseling 30 minutes once a month. It's, there's a lot to dig into. Um, but that's another discussion that I would love to have. Uh, this has been so wonderful. I'm so excited about I have a little vacation coming up, so I'm going to get your book so I can read it on the plane. Um, but um, yeah, I'm excited. And I, I do I have time for one more question, Torin? No, we got we're, we're we're pretty good on time. We okay. still have. We try to cap these between 45 minutes and an hour, or a long trip to the bathroom. Right. Okay. And we're, we're we're below that, so we got okay. a little more time if you're good. If you're good, Dr. Hannon. I'm I'm, right. I'm in good shape. Thank you. So, so I have a, um, well, it might not be a challenging question. It might be something easy for you to answer. <laughs> and I'm asking these questions two part. One, it, I want to learn how to help support my families as much as possible. So the more I learn from other people's experiences, the more I can help my families, but also for our listeners to get little nuggets. Um, so, uh, you know, I said before that I love when my dads are are in sessions. A lot of times my dads are not in sessions. And a lot of times my dads are against sessions, right? Um, not wanting um, parents to learn for, for, there's different dynamics around that. But is there anything that for our listeners, our moms who are feeling frustrated because they would like for dads to, um, participate in some way, um, or even some of my moms are really dealing with a lot of negative parenting from the dads, you know, old school, we're going to spank the autism out of them. And a lot of my moms are in situations where they have to make a choice between protecting their child or staying married. And that's a really difficult decision for several reasons, right? Economically, socially, um, the welfare of the child and what that can can lead to. So from a, you know, I know that you you counsel families. That's a sticky one for me because I'm always thinking safety of children, safety of children. And when a child is stimming and a dad is spanking them for stimming, that's really hard to hear. And it's really hard to hear a mom cry in the car when she feels like she can't do anything about it. Um, so what's your, what's your insight on that? 
uh, situation because it is very common. You know, like I said, I love when my dads are here, but a lot of times um, it's I a struggle. I was just going to ask that. You took the question right out of my head. It's a struggle. Just about to ask that. Yeah. So do me do me a favor. Give me the question. Give me the question again. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure yes. I address it. Of course. Yeah. What would you what would you suggest for moms who are struggling with dads who are just very negative, right? And negative in a way that it's impacting the dynamic of the child, of the family household, but the child, you know, uh, communicating or, or, you know, decreasing meltdowns or all those things when mom has, you know, all these things in place and then dad, you know, uh, you know, oh, he just needs to, you know, whatever dads may say. So what is it? What is the question? I, I just, I don't know how to help moms except for to recommend counseling, which that's a whole nother dynamic, right? Then the men don't want anybody in their business and you can't have anybody in our household. And uh, so I, I guess what can moms do when they are are trying to be patient and give dad time to process and move towards acceptance, but at the same time, it's negatively impacting the household. Um, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> tough situations. And um, yeah. you know, I don't no no magic bullet. I think um, a few things come to mind for me. I, and I, I, I align with you with respect to safety of the child takes mm-hmm. priority and precedence. Um, but I think I think one of the first things we can do to be the right kind of help to each other, partners, whether married or not, partners being the right kind of help, it certainly begins with asking questions. Mm -hmm. I can very much imagine um, a wife or vice versa. Your question was about wives to husbands or husbands to wives or husbands to husbands. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that that can begin with questions and acknowledging that there's some difficulty. Mm-hmm. So that could sound like, um, I noticed you haven't said much. Is there anything you wanna share now? I noticed you haven't said much and I'd really like your feedback about X, about um, you know these particular kinds of treatment. Um, I realize this is hard or I imagine this is hard. I know it's hard for me. What would be the right kind of help for you? What, what would be most supportive? And those kinds of questions, I hope, um, open up the lines of communication. And, and we know how um, challenging it could be just in relationship. Help, the healthiest of relationships still yeah. have communication barriers. Yes. So when, they're, when, when, when partners in a relationship confront challenges that they didn't anticipate or that are unfamiliar, then those communication barriers can become even more intense. Mm-hmm. And so asking the questions, And then after asking the questions, you know, I pulled this from, I don't know if you're a fan of Stephen Covey and the seven habits of highly effective people, but one of those habits that he cites is listen to understand, don't listen to respond. And that's something that mental health professionals hopefully do really well. Mm -hmm. And and that when, when partners are in good sync, that they know that they can answer a question and the answer to their question on the other side of that answer is not just a response. Like I'm jumping in, I'm jumping in. But really the person who's asked the question, who's seeking the information really just wants to understand and empathize 
-hmm. What is it like to be you in your shoes in this moment at this time? Have you ever had this experience before? I can imagine it can be scary. It can be frustrating. It can be unpredictable. And if you listen to understand, it creates the opportunity to make a deeper connection. And so those are really simple answers. And I don't mean to mm -hmm. oversimplify it. Yeah. But we can't be the right kind of help to each other until we get insight into each other's experience and into each other's, like yeah. as your kid said, they're our lived experiences. And so those are the kinds of things that, that come to mind for me. Um, and while, again, there's no magic bullet, one you know, tangible recommendation mm -hmm. is to be able to provide those dads or that dad who's having a tough time that's visible. He may not even say he's having a tough time. Mm -hmm. It may not be safe for him to say mm -hmm. he's having a tough time because the last time he said he was having a tough time, somebody mm -hmm. might've smacked him in the mouth. He yep. might've got a spanking. He might've yep. got judged. He might've been, he might've been called something out of his name. Mm -hmm. And so he may not even feel safe to say he's having a good time. He may not have had any practice through the time of his adolescence and adult life or even uh, early childhood life to practice saying, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I'm hurt. I'm scared because sometimes those things come with consequences in the ways that boys and men are socialized. Mm -hmm. And so taking heed to some of those things might be important, but one tangible thing is to begin to, to try and find connection groups where there are other dads who mm -hmm. have a similar experience. Yeah. Um, it's however, however that particular man, however that particular father um, unwinds and, um, uh, tries to relax, hopefully in healthy ways, um, it may be the opportunity to do that, to point him to a group like ours that meets on a monthly basis, mm -hmm. where hopefully he can feel confident that anything he says is above board. If he wants to say he's fucking mad that mm -hmm. his kid has autism, nobody's going to judge him. Mm -hmm. Not because nobody's going to judge him. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, 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 our, it's our hope that at some point in time, he can come to accept all mm -hmm. the beauty that is associated with being autistic mm -hmm. and how it transformed and how parenthood can transform us for the better if we have the right kind of support around us. Mm -hmm. But in the moment, if you have to say that, hey man, say it. Mm -hmm. Wait, so, so you're not gonna just tell him he's a terrible person. He should be, he should be <laughs> thankful and that like like they like the like all those autistic, all those traumatized autistic adults do on Twitter. Right, right. So yeah, I mean. Where the where yeah and so maybe maybe the other thing is is that partner trying to identify by either asking directly or doing their own homework is where are the spaces that dads find them where are the spaces that dads feel or say that they are the safest mm -hmm. where is that is that at the bar watching the game is that just mm -hmm. watching the game is that yeah. is that with my fraternity brothers is that with my work colleagues. Mm -hmm. And the spaces where they can be brave might be the places where they need to be encouraged to go because practice in the brave space mm -hmm. can lead to um, practice in the spaces that may not feel as brave, but with confidence that they can handle what may come as a result of being brave in another space. Yeah, I, I, and, and I'm not an expert on, on black men by any means, um, uh, but I, I do find, I <laughs> hung out with a lot of them in college, no. <laughs> I, um, I was always the girl that loved to just hang out with the guys because they're just not as catty as girls are so catty and complicated. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm married to one, but gosh, girls are catty and complicated. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I always find that when men have a really good friend 
right, or a really close brother, then I see a difference in how they present challenges opposed to men who may only have mom and sisters um, as an influence, which can be a really heavy influence. Um, you know, grandparents can be quite a challenge when parents get a diagnosis on, on so many levels because they're grandparents. Um, but I find that family influence can be the, the one of the things that gets in the way of dads accepting because everyone may have expected this, right? And then he may be moving towards it, but then it's expected. And so it's just going back and forth, going back and forth. And and I think that when you have that friend, right, whether it's your brother or your cousin or your fraternity brother, that can just tell you the truth <laughs> in a safe space. <laughs> um, you know, it helps because it's hard to, it's hard to, to disagree with family. It really is hard for some people. Now, I clearly uh, am not that person, but a lot of people want family approval. And when you have to, it's just tough. There's so many dynamics. This I could go on and on. So I'm going to stop now because I'm trying to solve all the problems of the world in one podcast because I just want it to be better. Um, I want, you know, I it saddens me when dads are missing out on their, their wonderful autistic child. Um, and, and I can sometimes see that they're sad, but they don't know what to do. They don't know how to step outside their comfort zone or outside that sort of um, male expectation. Um, yeah, it's tough. So all of you out there listening, you know, find someone, find that safe space, dads. Um, moms, give dads the opportunity to find that safe space and, and don't feel don't take it personal if you're not the safe space in the beginning, because sometimes, you know, they're guys. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I just, I, I really, really just appreciate it. I had such a wonderful dad and maybe that's why, I mean, I had the most amazing dad. Um, and I say that honestly, not because people say that I really had a great dad. <laughs> um, and, um, my kids have a great dad. And so I just have so much respect for dads. And I think dads have so much to offer and, and I want dads to be present in whatever way that works for them. Right. And I want them to be able to know that they can talk to other dads like yourself or read your book, or, you know, maybe sometimes reading the book is, is just enough, right. Listen, learning from other people's experience. So go get the book. Um, those of you out there listening, um, because we have to do it together. We have to do this together. We can't do it by ourselves. And, and we can't shift the narrative. Um, and actually, I will say, you know, Black dads can be a force when it comes to shifting the narrative. We just got to get them, get them, <laughs> just got to get them there. Um, because yeah. Yeah, and I would I would say I, I, they are a force and continue to be a force, right? Yes. I, I think I think some of the some of the attention that they deserve, just like other mm -hmm. folks who may be marginalized for whatever whatever identity that they mm -hmm. have, um, there are some folks who are not interested in in finding and listening hard enough. It's one thing it's yes. one thing to shout from the mountaintops, but if you have the control, if you have a control of the volume, then we might drown out the the the, the narrative of black fathers who are engaged and loving their families and loving their communities in ways that are super helpful yes. and healthy. Um, so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's, 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 um, it's really important to, um, 
to spotlight it and, and, and podcasts like yours and others and other forms of media um, are doing a much better job in, in, in allowing mm-hmm. our stories to be told f- yeah. from our perspectives mm-hmm. by, by us. Um, yes. With, exactly. with, with no filter. So yes. exactly. That, and that's the benefit of sort of new media and the mm-hmm. internet and things like that. Cause like n- none of us are ever getting on Fox news. Not what we're saying. <laughs> they ain't having that. But Stacy, that's why we're working to shift the narrative. But Torin, now I have to finish with a story and do a shout out. I know I've been talking yes, about yes, yes, yet. yes, please. Because it's actually an example of how being present can be different right? It doesn't have to be a certain way. When I separated, um, uh, when we separated, uh, their dad is a coach and every Tuesday and Friday- You and your ex-husband, you mean? Yes, my ex-husband separated. And, um, you know, Tuesday and Friday is basketball. He was a head basketball coach for basketball. And every night from the day we separated, their dad called them every night to say prayers, every night if they were not with him. During game nights on Tuesdays and Fridays, halftime, that man called his sons and I had them ready for halftime whenever it happened and said, your dad's on the phone. Let's go. It's halftime. That is being present in a different way. And I want everyone to take that away, um, take away from this, that it doesn't have to be a traditional sit down at the dinner table. It can look different, just like our autistic individuals can communicate differently and socialize differently. And, you know, join us in shifting the narrative because it's important to accept. It's okay if it looks different. It really is okay. All right, I'm done. I'm done, Torin. <laughs> I'm done. So, uh, Dr. Hannon, can you just uh, shout out your book again and where we yes. can find it just so people can remember? And by people, Absolutely. I mean me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Listen, um, pick up Black Fathering and Mental Health, published by Peter Lang Publishers. Again, the title is Black Fathering and Mental Health. You could find it on Peter Lang's website, the publishing house, which is peterlang.com. Or if you want to visit bit.ly, B I T is in Tom, dot L Y backslash Black Dad. You can find it right there. And, um, and all the links will be in the description, guys. So don't worry about it. Yeah, look forward to your reviews. Pick it up. Um, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share with the audience. We appreciate having you on. I think anything you'd like to say, we're ready to go. Okay, I'm going to say that I am going to talk to my dads about reading the book, and then I want to have a podcast where some of those dads who've read the book come back, and you come back with us, Michael, if you're open to it, and we have a discussion. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. I'm game. I'm game. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been wonderful. Appreciate y'all. And that's why we're working to shift the narrative on everything autism. Yeah, we're we're still working on that. It's new. We're still working on that sign off. Um... Hey, this is the sign off. (laughs) Whatever Stacy ends up saying and however she says it, because Stacy's eclectic and you never know. So (laughs) we'll see. You got to roll with it. Got to be flexible and open. Yeah. That's it. it. See ya.